Hey everyone. Before we start, I just wanted to note that um, since the last episode, I've had a few technological upgrades, including a new computer that does not have a fitting for my mic. So I'm dealing with an adapter, which isn't giving me the best sound, and Audacity, which I record with, has also updated, and I'm now figuring that out. So if the sound on this one is a little funky, bear with me. I'll probably be ordering a new mic and also um, spend a little more time working on the sound functions. But I did want to get this episode out, so I just wanted to let you guys know if something's weird with the sound, it is not going to be a trend, hopefully, going forward. So with that said, we will go ahead and get back to our episode. Life had been hectic lately for 15-year-old Rachel Pratt. She had recently found she was going to be a mother and was in her first trimester of pregnancy. Not being bogged down, she continued to live life as normally as she could. In January of 1995, Rachel would perform in a school band concert, then come home to settle in with her siblings while her mother worked an overnight shift. Rachel's mother would come home early, after several calls to the house, would result in a busy signal. Upon returning, she would find that Rachel had vanished. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 28, The Disappearance of Rachel Pratt. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon, at www.patreon.com backslash Midwest Mystery Files. I would also like to take this moment to thank my amazing patrons, Laura and Teresa. I also do want to take this second to also just thank my listeners in general. Uh, I know I don't tend to not be the most consistent person putting out podcasts, and I never did start this show with the intention of just pumping out episode after episode. Um, in hopes of, you know, notoriety or financial gain. But I do just want to let everyone know I appreciate you all because you do keep coming back. My numbers always stay the same no matter how long I go between episodes. And I just want to let everyone know how much I appreciate your patience and your dedication to hearing about these cases. I really appreciate it, and um, that's... I just wanted to say thanks. But uh, that's not... You know, the focus of this episode. The focus is Rachel Pratt. So let's go ahead and jump right into her case. Rachel Geraldine Pratt was born May 8th, 1979, to Robert and Jan Pratt. I couldn't find much of Rachel's earlier years, but she is the oldest of eight children, and at some juncture, her parents would divorce and Jan would remarry. And at the end of 1994, beginning of 1995, Jan, her husband, Rachel, and the seven other children would reside in Garden City, Kansas. 
Rachel has been noted as being a normal teenager, and it's been stated that she was a smart and good student who was involved in sports, as well as both band and jazz band. By all accounts, Rachel seemed to be a straightforward kid who gave her mother a little trouble. That's why it would come as a shock when 15-year-old Rachel was caught shoplifting in late 1994. What came as a further shock was that Rachel was not shoplifting what you may think a 15-year-old girl would be, such as clothes or makeup. Rachel had attempted to shoplift a home pregnancy test. Rachel would find that she was indeed pregnant, and after persistent questioning, she would confess to Jan that the father was an 18-year-old local boy with whom has never been named publicly. Jan would then go to the boy's house and speak with his father. Later, the boy's mother would call Jan and deny that her son was ever involved with Rachel. It wouldn't be long after this occurrence that Rachel and her mother went to the police to file a statement. A few weeks later, the boy would also go to the police and give a statement confirming his involvement with Rachel and being her boyfriend. On December 31st, 1994, he would be charged with aggravated indecent liberties with a child. Saturday, January 15th, 1995, was a warm day for January, with the sun shining and temperatures reaching into the low 60s. The sort of day that was reportedly similar to Rachel's demeanor, who, despite recent developments, was said to be in high spirits and was geared up to perform in a school band concert later that day. Reports state that Rachel returned from performing in the band concert late in the evening. She changed her clothes and then said goodbye to her mother, who was leaving for her overnight job. Jan would tell KAKE10 in 2018, quote, Before I went to work, she actually got back from the band concert. So I got to see her afterwards. I told her how good she did. She had like four solos in the jazz band. She did great. According to a January 2015 Garden City Telegram article, police investigations found that all of Rachel's siblings and Rachel's stepfather were reportedly in the home after Jan left. Reports state that Rachel's younger brother set a rollaway mattress on fire in the basement of the home. Rachel helped her brother put the fire out and remove the mattress. She then contacted her mother to let her know what had happened. It's unclear the exact times that these particular events occurred, but it's known that while Jan generally left work at 4 a.m., on this particular day, she left at 2 a.m. after calling home to check in a couple times and finding that the phone line was busy. Upon returning, Jan first came across the younger brother, with whom she inquired where Rachel was. The brother informed Jan that he had fallen asleep on the couch while him and Rachel watched the Swiss family Robinson, on the television. Rachel's younger sister, Lane, who was three at the time, would recall waking up in the night and seeing Rachel, telling KAKE10 News in Wichita in 2018, quote, It's just little memories I have of her. I remember because I woke up in the night or something, and I was thirsty. And I remember she gave me a drink, and she walked me back to bed. While the burned mattress had been removed from the basement, the air was still smoky, and concerned, 
Rachel may be sleeping down there, Jan went to check the basement for Rachel. Upon finding that Rachel was not in the basement, Jan checked the rest of the house, but could find no sign of her. Now concerned, a few things would stand out to Jan, as she would tell the Garden City Telegram in January of 2015. Quote, I went downstairs. Everything of hers was there, except her jacket that I got her for school. She never took her contacts out, her license, or even her social security card. She took nothing. Realistically, it looked like Rachel might have left with the intention of coming back. She would eventually need to take her contacts out and require her glasses, and she only took her coat. There was no sign of a struggle or anything that indicated Rachel may have left unwillingly. However, she never would come home. Jan would wait until the early hours of the morning, around 5 a.m., and she would hear a vehicle drive by that she thought sounded like the car that belonged to the father of Rachel's baby. Jan would contact the police to report Rachel missing, but would find little in the way of help. According to Jan, it would be five days before the police would step in to start a serious investigation. And that was only because Jan and her family had begun to put up missing person flyers. She would tell the Garden City Telegram in 2015, quote, They did nothing for five days, except to say, Oh, she didn't come home? Jan has also noted that the police never came to the home to investigate or to see if there was any signs of any wrongdoing. Around the same time police became involved, one alleged sighting would be reported in Garden City. A group of girls would claim that they saw Rachel talking on a payphone while in the company of her boyfriend. According to the girls, Rachel and her boyfriend finished the call and then asked the girls for a ride. The pair then went into a nearby Dylan's grocery store. This sighting is uncorroborated by anyone else who was in the store at the time. When questioned, the boyfriend denied this incident took place. The boyfriend told police that he had not had any contact with Rachel after her disappearance and that he had no part in her disappearance. It should be noted as well that the charges that had been placed against the boyfriend after it was discovered Rachel was pregnant were eventually dropped after Rachel was unavailable to testify. Rachel's family could think of no reason why Rachel would have wanted to leave had she left on her own accord. Despite recent events, she was in extremely high spirits and was even looking forward to an upcoming doctor's appointment in relation to her pregnancy. For all intents and purposes, she was living and enjoying her life the best that she could be. It's unclear what steps, if any, were taken in the early days of Rachel's disappearance in terms of attempts to locate her, but her case essentially went cold from the get-go. There has been no indication that Rachel ever gave birth, and she has not been seen since the early hours of January 16, 1995. In that time, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation has become involved, and there has been assistance from NICMEC, also known as NCMEC, also known as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, who have provided age progression photos over the years. And I will have those on social media and probably also with the episode card if you want to take a look at them. Captain Mike Utz, who was the Garden City Police Investigations Commander in 2015, 
and who had become involved in Rachel's case a few months after her disappearance, would tell the Garden City Telegram in 2015 that his office had followed numerous sightings across the United States and had checked in with several police departments after skeletal remains would be found, but they would never lead to Rachel. He would go on to state, quote, We don't know if she's alive. We suspect foul play, but there's nothing definitive to show what happened to her. We have talked to the boyfriend on occasion. We cannot rule him out, but we cannot say he is involved because we are still trying to find out if she left on her own accord. We know that either a former boyfriend or a former friend, someone in this community, knows something, and we would encourage them, no matter how minute it is they know, to call the police department and ask to speak to a detective. Something else within the Pratt family that I want to touch on quickly is Rachel's younger sister, Rennie Pratt. If that name in particular sounds familiar, it's because she was featured in a 2012 episode of Snapped on the Oxygen Network. In 2009, 28-year-old Rennie Pratt shot and killed her boyfriend, 36-year-old Michael Porcella, at their Oakland, California home. The overall history of their case isn't pertinent to Rachel's, except for one interesting piece of information located in the trial documents. Now, I do have to give credit here to Mary Ann over at Crime Scenes and Cupcakes, who recently covered this case with Patrick from Not Adding Up. Mary Ann found in court documents, which I also went and seeked out myself, that in an incident leading up to the shooting death, Rennie Pratt had communicated with the father of her children in February of 2009 that she had taken 14 to 18 trim spa pills in an attempt to take her own life after learning about and dealing with the fact that her stepfather had raped her sister. After which, Porcella told Pratt he could not be with someone so impulsive. I want to note a few things here. This situation is very quickly mentioned in the documents, and as it pertains to Rennie's murder case, it's only framed in the border of said case, meaning we never do get a time frame of the alleged rape or even what sister it supposedly happened to. I also want to stress that this is alleged, and as such, I have purposely kept the stepfather's name out of this episode, as well as Jan's current last name, as it's obviously the same as his. I only put this information of the alleged event in this podcast with the idea that there could be the chance that something could have been said to somebody years ago and it could possibly spark any sort of memory that could lead to answers to Rachel's whereabouts or what may have caused her to leave. But again, I do want to stress that the event is alleged and with such little information, this is really the only part where I'm going to mention it. So that's why it will not be included in theories later. A teenage girl disappears from her home without a trace. A nightmarish scenario for any mother and grandma to be. And in the years since, she has neither been seen or heard from. And now, with the absence of knowledge, we're only left with thoughts and theories. We only know what's been printed about what all went on in Rachel Pratt's home the night she disappeared. 
but I have to admit, from the outside looking in, I find some things confusing. Let's start with the thing I'm sure caught everyone's attention when I said it earlier. Reportedly, Rachel's younger brother set a roller mattress on fire in the basement of the home. If you're unsure what that is, it would be a mattress that is, as the name suggests, rollable. Think something you might put on a folding or a hide-a-bed, or something you might have just to throw out on the floor. The incident is stated to be accidental. Whether it was is neither here nor there, I suppose. I just find it strange that if indeed there was the stepfather in the home, as one article suggests, how does it get to the point that a young child is able to light a bed on fire? I also wonder, if he was home, would Jan have been as quick to come home when the phone line was busy? Obviously, we don't know how the entire home life was, and how there or absent certain individuals were. It just makes it harder to actually know what the atmosphere and environment around the home was that night. Either way, the mattress was reportedly removed from the home, and I will loop back around to that later. There's really only two avenues to look at here. Either Rachel left of her own volition, or she met with foul play. Reportedly, Rachel had little reason to leave of her own accord. She was looking forward to her first doctor appointment for her pregnancy, she was doing well in school, and she was set to testify in the trial of her baby's father. There's also the fact that she didn't take anything she would need outside of the home. Her contacts would eventually need to come out, but she left her glasses, along with any forms of identification, such as her ID or her social security card. It's unclear if any money she was known to have was gone, but I feel if an actual wallet was gone, it would have been noted. That's not to say there isn't some reason she might have felt the need to leave, but from what we can tell, it seems highly unlikely. One thing I do think is likely, though, is that she did leave the house that night, even if only to step outside for a moment. The one thing that was missing was Rachel's jacket. It's highly likely, to me at least, that if Rachel did meet with foul play, there's a high likelihood that it happened outside the home. Aside from her jacket missing, there's two other things that make me think she could have gone outside. One is the burning mattress. She could have simply wanted to double check on it to make sure it had stopped smoking or hadn't caught anything else on fire. This, of course, suggests that somebody was already waiting for her, or she was just extremely unlucky and had a random encounter with the wrong person. The latter certainly seems somewhat possible, but highly unlikely. It also seems unlikely someone would just be sitting out there waiting for her, but it's also something to consider. The other scenario plays more into the fact that Jan tried to call home a few times and the phone line was busy. This shows that someone was likely on the phone. Is it possible that Rachel was talking to someone on the phone? Rachel's noted time of last being seen is around 1 a.m. I'm not completely sure if this is considered as the most likely time that Lane saw her older sister or the time that the younger brother fell asleep. It's been stated also that Jan tried to call home a few times to find the phone busy. It's possible Rachel spoke on the phone once or multiple times with some sort of acquaintance. Who exactly, we can't say for sure. And it's possible this led to a rendezvous 
with said person outside of the home. At which point, whatever may have happened, happened. While in this instance, it's likely Rachel knew her abductor, there's also the less likely possibility that whoever Rachel would have spoken to left the premises and someone else struck afterwards. However, if that was the case, I do feel like whoever was on the phone would have come forward to at least clear up that confusion. So while we certainly can't say for sure, there's a strong possibility that if Rachel was the one on the phone, with whom she was talking to is likely also involved with her disappearance. It's here that we come to the most obvious and easiest person to point fingers at. Rachel's boyfriend and the father of her unborn child. Realistically, it's easy to be suspicious of him. Rachel had a pending court case against him, in which charges were dropped after her disappearance. As far as his demeanor towards being a dad, I can't speak on that. Really, we have no idea what the relationship was like between the two. There was a report from some girls a week after Rachel's disappearance that Rachel and her boyfriend were spotted at a payphone before asking the girls for a ride and then entering a Dylan's grocery store. However, this sighting is unconfirmed and highly uncorroborated by anyone else in the area at the time. It's possible the girls were confused by who they saw and spoke to. That would at least be the most likely scenario in my book. There was also the fact that Jan believed she heard the vehicle of the boyfriend driving in the neighborhood at about 5 a.m. on January 16th, just a few hours after she arrived home to find Rachel missing. This is pretty circumstantial, really. It could have been him, but with just a noise and no visual, it's hard to really even speculate that it could have been him for sure. I do have to note, though, about the boyfriend that he did come forward and take responsibility for his actions once the word was out that Rachel was pregnant. A move that hardly seems realistic to make if he later wanted Rachel to disappear. He would pretty much be asking to have the attention put directly on himself. All in all, there are a number of possibilities of what happened to Rachel, but unfortunately little in the way of clues to start with. It's been 28 years since Rachel Pratt disappeared from her family's home in Garden City, Kansas. In that time, there has been no sign that Rachel has given birth to her child, and anything in the way of leads have been few and far between. Rachel was a good student, active in school activities, and from what we can tell, was well-liked. When she disappeared, not only a 15-year-old girl disappeared, but so did the daughter, sister, and a soon-to-be mom. So in that regard, two people might as well have disappeared. Rachel's mother, Jan, still lives in the same house and keeps the same number in hopes that one day her daughter will return. There is very little information or coverage on Rachel's case. I initially found her listing on the Charlie Project, and it read like a case that, once I sunk my teeth into it, my research would open up more of a story. But unfortunately it didn't. Now years later, I think the only way most people are going to hear about her is by searching The Charlie Project or through podcasts. Which as of now, I may be only the second or third person to cover Rachel's case. So with that said, I highly, highly encourage you 
to share this episode, or any other sources you may find or know of to get Rachel's case out there. 28 years is way too long to go without answers. And not only should Rachel be here, but so should her 28-year-old child. In January of 1996, the Garden City Telegram printed a letter from Rachel's parents. And that is what I would like to leave us with. It reads as follows. January 16th will be a year since our daughter, Rachel Pratt, left our home. It has been a sad year of hoping we, could, we would hear something. But unfortunately, we know no more today than we did then. Through all of this, there have been caring family and friends that continue to encourage us to believe and be strong when all we could do was cry, hurt, and wonder why. There hasn't been a day go by that someone doesn't ask, have you heard anything about Rachel? Even people I don't know have said to us, I hope you find your daughter. I can't tell you how much we have appreciated your kind words and prayers, especially our family and friends for being there. Also, Garden City High School students and faculty, Walmart employees, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, KSNG TV, and Detective Elchuk. Rachel Geraldine Pratt was last seen in her home in Garden City, Kansas at approximately 1 a.m. on January 16, 1995. At the time of her disappearance, she was 15 years old and is described as a Caucasian female with brown hair, brown eyes. She is 5 foot 7 and 125 pounds. She wears glasses, but only had her contacts in at the time of her disappearance. No clothing description has been given, but she likely had her Garden City High School letterman jacket. Rachel was in the first trimester of pregnancy, and there has never been any sign that she has given birth. If alive today, she would be 43 years old. Foul play is suspected in her case. If you have any information on the disappearance of Rachel Pratt, please contact the Garden City Police Department in Garden City, Kansas at 620-276-1300. That's 620-276-1300. If you're looking for more information, there really isn't much out there. The Garden City Telegram had the most information, but I also encourage you to check out the episode on Rachel from Crime Scenes and Cupcakes, which takes a more discussion-based look at the case. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.